this is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. You die today, and when I hear this, I step out into the dewy sunlight and listen to the robins sing. You died today, and I move the clothes from the washer to the dryer. I call the dog in from the rain. You died today, and I must continue on with this business of living. From the poem Mother, written by me, KB Marie. And this is the true story of who killed my mother. It's still dark outside when I untangle my legs from the 30-pound dog sleeping on them and slip out of my warm bed. Bleary-eyed, I find the toilet, sit. Yawning, I open my phone and compulsively check my email like every other technologically addicted person in the world. One subject line stops me. Medical examiner records. I open it, squint at the text. Do not reply to this email message or send messages to this email address, as it is only for outgoing email. Your message will not be seen or answered. I begin frantically rummaging through my toiletries basket, trying to find my contacts so I can actually see the smudged letters on my phone. I wash my hands, get my lenses into my eyes, and open the attachment. I'm gripping the sink, heart pounding, when Kim comes into the bathroom, sees me, and frowns. What's wrong? She asks. I look up, catch sight of my wide, panicked eyes in the mirror. He lied to me about how he found her, and he lied to the police. I set up at the kitchen table. I've got my notepad, pen, and a steaming cup of tea. Chai, with a bit of milk. I needed something stronger than my usual green today. On one side of the computer screen, the autopsy report is open. On the other, a blank word document. As you can imagine, I'm prepared to really get into this. I'm going to read this autopsy at least four or five times through. This morning alone, scraping it for every question I can possibly think of. I want to be prepared when I speak to the examiner. I want to leave no stone unturned. The report begins typically with my mother's name, age, and where she was found. Letha, 56, at my grandmother's house in Nashville, Tennessee. Type of death? Suspected homicide. Time of death? 2.55 p.m. Here is my first question. How can the time of death be 2.55 p.m. when I already had talked to the detective by then and Joe had already found her that morning, at least as early as 9? I scribble this down and move on to the narrative summary. Reportedly, the decedent was a 56-year-old white female who was discovered unresponsive in the residence by family at approximately 0900 hours, on July 4, 2020, 911 was contacted, 
Emergency medical services responded to the residents to confirm a systole. I looked this word up. Apparently, it's just a fancy word for the type of cardiac arrest that means, yes, you are really dead. Reportedly, the decedent had a history of drug use, heroin, hypertension, and mood disorder. I write my next question. Who told the police she had a history of heroin use? Because my mother had never used heroin. I didn't know about the hypertension, but I'm not surprised. It wasn't like my mother had a great diet or anything. Hell, she wouldn't even drink a glass of water. And the mood disorder, too, I'm well aware of. Detective Barnes contacted the medical examiner's office via pager to request a response. Due to the suspicion of a homicide, medical examiner jurisdiction was accepted. I, the medical investigator, responded to the residents to perform a brief body examination and document the scene with photography. Here I hesitate. Slowly, I scroll through the PDF for any hint that there is in fact a photograph of my mother's corpse attached to the report. Blessedly, there are not. Probably for the best, considering my vivid imagination needs no help in recreating the image of my mother's dead body all on its own. Middle Tennessee Removal Service transported the decedent's body to the Center for Forensic Medicine for further examination. Final disposition arrangements were unknown at the time of this report. It is signed by the medical investigator who first arrived on the scene and dated at 4.59 p.m. the day that my mother died. At the bottom of this first page, there are two more boxes, one with the cause of death, acute fentanyl intoxication, and another with the manner of death, accident. I write down, does the medical examiner really think it's an accident, or does this mean they don't have enough to convict him? On the next page, it's my mother's name, sex, race, and age again, as well as the date and time of death, but it also has the date and time of when the autopsy was performed. July 6th, 2020, at 9.45 a.m. Below this repetition of identifying information is a section titled Pathologic Diagnoses. It reads, 1. Acute fentanyl intoxication. A. Mild pulmonary congestion. Right lung, 310 grams. Left lung, 680 grams. 2. Hemorrhage in the left parietal and left temporal scalp without injury to skull or brain. 3. Layered anterior neck dissection negative for hemorrhage and strap muscles. Summary of case and opinion. This 56-year-old white female was found unresponsive lying on her right side, in the bedroom floor of the residence she shared with her brother. Clothing was piled on top of her body. Her past medical history is significant for drug abuse, hypertension, hepatitis C, and mood disorder. Autopsy reveals petechial hemorrhages on the right side of her face and in the right eye, consistent with her lividity pattern and how her body was found. A layered anterior neck dissection does not reveal hemorrhage in the strap muscles of the neck, and a fracture through the other layer of bone only is noted on the hyoid bone and does not exhibit associated hemorrhage. Joe lied to me. He painted a picture that he'd simply woke up on Saturday morning and out of concern, had gone into my mother's bedroom and found her unresponsive in her bed. He'd made no mention of her being in the floor, nor did he explain why he might have, bizarrely, piled clothes on top of her. The official story, at least what's written under a summary of case and opinion, was that my mother was found lying on her right side, unresponsive. And while I write down questions about the clothes, I also want the examiner to explain why she would have bleeding on the left side of her head 
if she was found on her right side. It can only mean that her head was injured before she died, since the scalp had bled. You don't bleed after you die. There isn't a working heart to move the blood around. But it wasn't. The blood had pulled on the right side of her body. So the idea that she had collapsed in her bedroom, hit the left side of her head on impact, and then rolled entirely onto the other side of her body and died, especially since most of the fluid accumulation was also on her left side. The left lung had 680 grams of fluid, and the right only 310. Shouldn't the right lung have more fluid if she had settled on her right side? Given this information, it seems to me that she was lying on her left side as she was dying. Then when she died, shortly after, she was turned onto her right side, where the blood then settled and pooled. Because if someone is unresponsive enough to fall down, they probably don't have it in them to roll over. And I check the internet, of course, to see if it agrees. And it does. Unconscious people don't move. In order to account for all of this, Joe must have moved her before she died, assuming, of course, that her bleeding scalp was from a fall and not because he struck her. So is it possible that she did collapse in the living room, possibly injuring the left side of her head, and that is where Joe found her, as described in one version of his story? But if this is true, the overdose was well on its way, fluid creeping into her lungs, beginning to drown her by the time Joe had found her. And if he'd found her and moved her like this, she would have been in bad shape. She would have likely already been blue in the face, in the lips. How curious, then, that Joe supposedly saw her turn blue like this during a supposed seizure that happened months before, that he'd understood the danger then, had acted immediately, resuscitating her, and had promised to get medical help should it ever happen again. And yet in this instance, where the symptoms would have been no doubt as serious, if not more alarming, he didn't call an ambulance or even drive her to the hospital. Instead, he carried her to her bedroom and put her in the floor. Then he didn't get her a pillow or a blanket for the sister that he was putting on the floor instead of the bed. He piled clothes on top of her body. The toxicology report doesn't show up until pages 6 and 7 of the 9-page autopsy report. There were six substances found in the blood taken from my mother's femoral artery. 4-ANPP, caffeine, cotinine, nicotine, fentanyl, norfentanyl. None of this would mean anything to me if it weren't for the helpful reference comments explaining each of the findings below these results. But even so, I have questions and jot them down along the margins of my notepad as I go. Compound 1, 4-ANPP, is a precursor chemical used in the production of fentanyl and is also a fentanyl metabolite and may be a metabolite of other fentanyl-related compounds. Compound 2, caffeine. Caffeine is a xanthine-derived central nervous system stimulant. It also produces diarrhesis and cardiac and respiratory stimulation. It can be readily found in such items as coffee, tea, soft drinks, and chocolate. As a reference, a typical cup of coffee or tea contains between 40 to 100 milligrams of caffeine. No doubt my mother's vehicle of delivery for this caffeine was her beloved diet soda, 
which she must have drank in their typical quantities on the day of her death. Compound 3, codenine, is a metabolite of nicotine and may be encountered in the fluids and tissues of an individual as a result of tobacco exposure. Again, this is not surprising, since my mother smoked close to a pack a day. Compound 4, nicotine, is a potent alkaloid found in tobacco leaves at about 2 to 8% by weight. It is reportedly found in various fruits, vegetables, and tubers, but at a smaller weight per fraction. As a natural constituent of tobacco, nicotine is found in all commonly used smoking or chewing tobacco products, but also in smoking cessation products. The report also notes anthracosis in my mother's lungs, which the medical examiner will explain as normal for someone who smokes, but it is something that can also be caused by air pollution or breathing dirty air. The fifth compound in my mother's autopsy report is norfentanyl. This is the primary and active metabolite of the synthetic narcotic fentanyl. Then we arrive at the fentanyl itself, the sixth and final compound found in my mother's blood. Fentanyl is a DEA Schedule II synthetic morphine substitute, anesthetic. It is reported to be 80 to 200 times as potent as morphine and has a rapid onset of action as well as addictive properties. It is reported that patients lost consciousness at mean plasma levels of fentanyl at 34 nanograms per milliliter when infused with 75 micrograms per kilogram over a 15-minute period. Peak plasma levels averaged 50 nanograms per milliliter. My mother's fentanyl level, by comparison, was 33 nanograms per milliliter at the time of her death. That means how much was left in her body when she died. That's not how much she ingested, that's when her body gave up. Whatever she ingested must have been a much higher dose than that, which means her fentanyl intake most definitely rendered her unconscious, making a collapse possible. And the dose must have been truly massive. In 2018, the DEA stated that as little as 2 to 3 milligrams of fentanyl is a lethal dose for most people, and they shared a photograph of what 2 milligrams looks like. And it looks like a few pop rocks beside a penny. It is so small. That's why law officers and first responders are warned to wear protective clothing during known raids to prevent inhalation or skin absorption of the drug. In another photograph, I see three vials showing how much heroin it takes to kill you compared to fentanyl. It's 30 milligrams for heroin and just 2 to 3 milligrams for fentanyl. Side by side, it looks like a pinch of dust, heroin, compared to merely dusty residue stuck to the glass, fentanyl. It isn't until I see these photos of the drug side by side do I realize just how little 30 milligrams is. And if it really takes so little to kill a person, then it would have been so easy for Joe to roll the lethal dose sprinkled into a cigarette. And it only takes a few minutes to smoke a cigarette, so my mother likely would have gotten more than enough, even if she'd only taken a few drags before suspecting that something was wrong with the taste of it. And if Joe really did mistake the fentanyl for heroin when he bought it and gave her enough heroin to kill her, the aforementioned 30 milligrams, it would have been 10 times more than necessary to end her life. I'm not convinced that Joe wasn't already home watching all of this unfold as it happened, I think he would have wanted to make sure that his plan had worked, and if he had stayed even for the beginning, it would have hit her system very quick. I dare say he watched her collapse and moved her to the bedroom before possibly leaving the house. 
And let's say for argument's sake that he really did leave, maybe to give himself an alibi. If he didn't find her collapsed until after he came back, my mother would have definitely been showing signs of an overdose at this point. Is that why Joe chose to dump her on the floor rather than put her in bed? Because she was showing these signs of fentanyl toxicity? And if so, which ones? Seizures? Coma-like unresponsiveness? A blue face or lips? A limp body? A shallow heartbeat? Slowed breathing or gurgling sounds? Possibly even gasping? And are we to believe that when Joe found her, he didn't recognize the danger she was in? That he didn't understand that she was dying? Of course he did. He knew what an overdose looked like. He would have recognized it immediately, the second he saw her. And that's why I don't need to know for sure if he gave her the drugs or didn't give her the drugs, if it was premeditated or an accident. I have everything I need to glean Joe's intentions that night. The picture is clear enough. Joe didn't help my mother when she was dying because he wanted her to die. I make the first two or three passes of the autopsy report with a purely analytical mind. I'm pretty adept at this, actually. I usually lead with thoughts instead of feelings as a first line of defense against pain. But this never lasts, of course, because I do have feelings. So when I read my mother's autopsy report for the fourth or fifth time, it finally hits me. The woman in this report isn't a mystery to be dissected. This death isn't a puzzle to solve. This is my mother. The corpse that the examiner is describing is my mother's. That of a well-developed, well-nourished body mass index of 23.3 kilograms per meter squared. White female clad in a camouflage print shirt and green shorts. The body weighs 136 pounds and is 5 feet 4 inches in length and appears consistent with the reported age of 56 years. Rigor is present to an equal degree in all extremities. Fixed lividity is on the anterior surface of the body, except in areas exposed to pressure. Petechial hemorrhages are on the right side of the face. The clear description of her body cut open, her organs examined for abnormalities. My mother dismantled. None of this is the part that cuts me. What cuts me is this simple, decidedly unpoetic line. The scalp hair is gray, mixed with brown. My mother died wearing a camouflage t-shirt and green shorts, and her hair was gray, mixed with brown. There hadn't been any gray in it the last time I'd seen her alive. Our last face-to-face -face encounter in December of 2012. That was the year her long-term boyfriend that she'd been living with for years had suddenly died. She'd been understandably sad about it, so I'd invited her to come and visit us in Michigan. Us, because Kim and I were already living together by then. I thought this would be fine, because my mother had already been to Michigan to visit me in 2009, just three years before. Back then, I'd asked her to come because I was at my most depressed, and I was in bad shape, and like most ailing children, I just wanted to see my mom. I was suicidal and slowly weaning myself off of my bulimia, but I still wanted her to come, because I thought that even a shit show of a visit would likely have been better than what would happen if I spent the new year alone. But to my surprise, it had been a good visit. 
a really good visit. She'd been sober, lucid, we hadn't fought, we'd just watched TV and ate takeout. She liked how quiet my apartment was. She enjoyed walking around my campus to see where I went to graduate school, where I worked. Mostly we just talked, and I was comforted just by her being there, sitting by the window with her glasses on, reading the journals where my poetry had been published, and telling me how proud she was of me. That was it. Her, on my rinky-dink sofa, in my rinky-dink apartment, that always smelled like garlic because I guess some vampire hunter lived down the hall. But it had been so nice, so, I dare say, nourishing, that I'd erroneously expected an equally good visit in 2012. She would have been depressed, of course, unhappy, this much I expected. But instead, she was in a full-blown manic episode. For the next five nights, my mother rarely slept, for more than an hour at a time, day or night. The only pills in her bag were her Celexa, but I didn't see her take it once. She came with eight pills and left with eight. She did, however, take Benadryl, saying it was the only reason she could get the little sleep that she did. She kept smoking in the apartment, even though I kept telling her to go outside onto the balcony because Kim is asthmatic. She refused to do this because it was December in Michigan and because she also refused to wear pants or much clothing at all and I was hesitant to actually shove her out there into the cold. She watched the movie Bridesmaids with Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph on repeat for the entire visit. When it ended, she would simply restart the movie and begin again, laughing at all the same jokes as if she hadn't just watched it. She broke a glass and tried to flush it down the toilet. She tore open a bag of coffee and somehow managed to spill it all over our new white sofa, even though there was a good 30 feet between our couch and the kitchen. She had a meltdown when she found our box of recycling in the closet, telling us that we lived like filthy animals because we stored our trash in our house. She insisted that she could, in fact, clean our house better than we did, even though she kept using the bathroom with the door open and never washed her hands. My wife started muttering when passing me in the hall. Oh my god, she didn't wash again. Corey, she did not wash her hands. Corey, she's not washing. My mother also tried to steal, for some reason I don't entirely understand, my wife's flip-flops in December. But only one of them, which I found in her coat pocket. At night when we went to bed and left her in the living room on the sofa with her blankets and pillows, after I kissed her goodnight and closed the door, she wouldn't remember where she was or what time it was. She turned the movie on again, turned it up ten times louder than it needed to be, and began rushing around the apartment in a panic, until I got up, went out there, turned the TV down, reminded her of where she was, what time it was, and encouraged her to take another Benadryl. I probably don't need to tell you that by the third night of all of this, my underslept girlfriend, one day wife, was losing her mind. The more erratic my mother became, the more unhinged Kim became. My reaction, however, was quite different. In the face of my mother's psychosis, I fell right into the coping mechanisms I'd used all my childhood. I became very calm, very focused. I spoke to her in slow, soft terms. When she broke something, tried to steal something, or started the movie for the 4,000th time, I somehow manifested patience that I never have in my day-to-day -day existence. 
The only time I almost lost it myself was with the smoking, because I was genuinely worried Kim was going to have an asthma attack, which is why I'd put her back on the plane when our five days were over, grieving or not. I say all of this as a context for Joe's situation. If this is what my mother had been like in the last few months of her life, maybe Joe needed no other motivation to kill her. Not money from a possible insurance policy or the uncontested inheritance of my grandmother's estate. Maybe his own peace of mind was motivation enough. Freedom from the caregiving responsibilities of taking care of someone so unwell. But even if Joe thought caring for her was too maddening, too much, driving him to the edge of his own sanity, he had no right to end her life. And let's be honest, I'm probably being too generous with this scenario. He was probably motivated to kill her for simpler, more selfish reasons than his peace of mind. It's weeks and weeks before the medical examiner finally calls me back. When she does, I'm lying on my sofa, flirting with a headache, my arm draped dramatically over my face to block out the light. I recognize the Nashville area code, but not the number. I shoot upright, accepting the call. Hello? Hello? Yes, can I speak to Corey, please? This is she. Hello, Corey, this is the medical examiner, Dr. Champion. I'm so sorry it took me so long to get back to you. I understand that you have questions for me? Yes, I say. Yes, I do. This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir, to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.